This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their 10-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash The Candid Frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. Listeners of The Candid Frame can now help support the show while learning how to master the core features of their camera with our first online workshop offering, The Candid Frame Photo Essentials. This 58-page ebook, which includes access to over three hours of streaming video content, is available for just $59 using the discount code TCF2014. Order it today and help support the show by visiting thecandidframestore.com. There are certain photographers who I really enjoy sitting down to talk to because our conversations go beyond the mechanics of photography. Instead, they delve deeply into why we pick up a camera in the first place. David Dushman is a photographer who many of you are no doubt familiar with. His popular titles include the classic Within the Frame, as well as numerous e-books he's published through his own imprint, Craft and Vision. They are all must-reads for people who aspire to do more with their photography than just making the occasional pretty picture. Our recent conversation revolved around one of his latest books, A Beautiful Anarchy, which I can't recommend enough. Our conversation began about how this book started off as a book on creativity and became so much more. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it started as this idea of uh, I'm going to do a book about creativity. It actually started sort of as a book about creativity for photographers. And the more I started writing, the more I realized, you know, this wasn't really just for photographers at all. And then the more I started writing beyond that point, I realized, you know, this isn't actually purely about creativity in that in that artistic sense, because the more I sort of fleshed out these principles of creativity, the more I kept kind of, you know, to use a metaphor I use in the book, I kept coloring outside the lines and I wasn't trying to be uh, a rebel about it. I wasn't trying to be an anarchist about it. I was trying just to be faithful to what I, you know, what was kind of coming into my mind about this process. And I, I, so I, eventually I kind of sat back and realized, you know what, the, we can make art and that is one act of creativity, but the same issues uh, apply when it comes to making a business or uh, growing a family or, you know, I mean, pick any field of human endeavor where we make a difference in the world, where we, we do something that is truly authentic to ourselves. And these principles of creativity apply. And so really this book that started out as what are the principles of creativity? What are the obstacles of creativity? Um, became so much more and became a, really about not just creating our art, but about creating our lives. You talk about in the, in, in the book about dealing with fear 
and dealing with self-doubt, which I think is faced by, by everyone. The process of writing about it, did it reveal something about your own your own process in dealing with fear and, and self-doubt in a way that you probably hadn't considered before? It, it does. Uh, you know, I bury an exorcist. This is why I like interviews with you. You ask these questions that kind of make me scratch my head. And, and yeah, I, th- I think I went into the book with a little bit more bravado about fear than, than I ended up coming out with. Uh, I went in with the attitude of, well, you know, to hell with fear, just ignore it and re- recognize that you face the fear because I do think it's the single greatest obstacle for living a creative life. But uh, the more I wrote about it, the more I realized that, I, in fact, fear is kind of like that little kid who keeps nagging you for a cookie. You've got to got to at least give it a hearing. And, and I think the reason you, you do that is because when you can identify the source of those fears, you can you can move forward without that clamoring of that voice in your ear. So so not to allow fear to be the boogeyman, you know, and, and allow it to stay in the shadows. So I think when we do that, we actually give it greater power than when we allow it to kind of come into the light, recognize, hey, this is the source of my fears. This is the fear I have and and I will I will move forward despite that fear, not wait until it disappears. Yeah, for me fear has has always been associated with a a physical sensation. I mean, I feel it in my in my chest, uh, in my throat, and I think that that physicality makes it seem more real than it actually actually is. And one of the things that I I, I really appreciated about reading the the book was this concept of that 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 fear is rooted in something that may have happened in our or likely happened in our past that somehow gives makes it seem, provides it a, a false value or a false weight as mm-hmm. compared to what we're going to currently. And because we, we so want to avoid that that pain again, we'll let fear dictate what we choose to do and, and not to do. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, you use the word pain and I think, I think it's important to remember, and I, I mentioned this in the book as well, I, pain is, we try so hard to avoid pain and yet, I think we try so hard to avoid pain because we associate pain with, with harm. Uh, just because something hurts does not mean it is harmful. And, and if you can, if you can see things through that paradigm, and, and I got there because of, you know, the accident that I had a, a number of years ago, it has sort of this ongoing uh, effect in my life dealing with or sort of new surgeries on my feet, trying to get me walking normally again and, and that sort of thing. And so I go to this massage therapist and she does some very uh, hurtful, some very painful things to me, but none of them harm me. In fact, they, they always in the end are uh, therapeutic and healing to me. And, and I realized the reason that I don't fear that hurt is because, A, I don't make that equation. I don't think of it as harming me. But I trust. I trust her process in getting me to a place of, of you know, uh, increased wholeness. And, and if we can get to a place where we trust our own creative process, where we don't believe that everything that hurts will harm, uh, then I think we can approach fear with a little less of that, that adrenaline rush that we get when you know, when we kind of get that fight or flight uh, instinct come up in us. You know, when you when I was reading that in your book, it brought to mind the idea of faith, of having faith that, in this case, the therapist had your 
best intentions in in mind, that she wasn't there to hurt you or harm you, that even though it was uncomfortable and painful, that in the end, it was something that was going to be to your, your benefit. I struggle sometimes with finding faith in something bigger than myself that allows me to walk through that fear. And I, some people have, you know, God or a higher power to believe in, but, you know, not everyone, you know, uh, believes in those things. And what do you think is involved in, in developing a faith, either in your own creativity or something else bigger than yourself that allows you to move past that paralyzing, that paralyzing fear? Well, let's equate it to, you know, to, uh, just as a metaphor to religious faith, where generally that religious faith, at least initially, comes from some kind of experience, some kind of experience of the transcendent, um, some, you know, uh, in some traditions, some kind of vision or, but it, it comes down to some kind of experience where you just experientially know something to be true and, and, the things from there that you believe kind of cascade out. And I think for me, it is trusting and a faith in the story that I have experienced enough failure, things that I should have been and at times was deeply afraid and have bounced back. And I have come to realize through these experiences that, you know what, I, what truly what doesn't kill us uh, makes us stronger and and the things that don't kill us vastly outnumber that one thing that eventually will and so I think my faith in this particular sense is in the fact that the story will play out and I long for a greater story I want to leave a legacy of someone who was authentic to himself and left the best uh, impression that he could and left the world a better place. So I know that I can bounce back. I know that whatever I encounter that doesn't kill me, and in the creative life, that's not many things if we're honest with ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I will make it and they will make me thrive. And that one thing that eventually does in fact kill me, I won't be around to dwell on it. So that faith comes from, I, I guess, is, is in the in the sense is in the, the, the fact that the story will play out and we are much more resilient than we think we are in both a physical sense and an emotional, mental, spiritual kind of sense. We are so resilient if we, if we have the will to be so. Yeah. It gave rise to the idea of why do I want to be creative? What's, what's the end game for me? Though I have, though it's obvious I have some satisfaction from, you know, creating a good photograph or writing a book and, and being pleased with the final result. For me, it's the thing that sort of sees me through is this idea that I'm doing these things to be of service to others. And by making it bigger than myself, it allows me to, to sort of see it through to the end. And I think everyone sort of needs to find out that answer for themselves. Cause I think that that, that can help you move past those obstacles that typically prevent you from sitting down and, and, you know, writing the page to just to that novel or going out to make the photograph or, or picking up the guitar to make those pieces of music. What has it been for you? Cause I'm sure it's evolved. That's, that's helped to propel that beyond merely this, you know, as you just suggested, this idea that you wanted to, leave a legacy. 
Well, uh, it's a number of things. And I, I wouldn't say merely the idea of legacy because I think that's huge. I, I think at the end of the day, life and, and history, as we look back through thousands of years, the people that we look back to are the ones that left legacy. And, and that is, in some sense, a profoundly selfish endeavor. And I, I don't mean selfish in a negative way. I mean in the best possible way. You are this one person that will never exist again. Certainly there will be billions of others, but never you the way that you are now. And, and so the legacy that you leave will be such a reflection of that one individual person. And you owe it to yourself and the planet in, in this sense. I mean, the biggest gift you can give is to be truly, honestly yourself. So in terms of motivation, that's huge for me. But it's not the only motivation. Um, <laughs> all of them just happen to be kind of selfish in, mm-hmm. again, I think in that really positive way, because I, I get tremendous satisfaction from being generous and helping others achieve their dreams. I get tremendous satisfaction uh, having two hours to sit down in my chair and just write something from my heart and then look at it and say, this is, is good and, and honest and, and true as far as I can tell and, and will be a gift to someone else that reads it. Um, so I, increasingly I'm not looking at things as a, well, this is, you know, this is a, a gift to the world. It's not selfish. I think the things that are the most satisfying to me in that selfish way are also the greatest gifts that I can give and vice versa. So I have kind of recalibrated that for myself, that, that idea of selfishness. I'm not talking about egocentric. I'm not talking about greedy. I'm talking about placing my, myself at the, placing myself first in terms of what can I create? Because it is me. It is me that is creating it. But what can I create for, for others, for those that are not me? And, and maybe in doing so, connect us and create something that's bigger than all of us individually. Sorry, I, I don't know if that's a good answer. I'd no, very nice, no. But let, me, let me follow it up with something because I think it's part and parcel of, of that. How does placing less importance on what other people think about you and the work play in that? Well, well, it's, I, gosh, I would love to say to hell with everyone else's opinions, but the fact is I think that's part of where the fear comes from. I want other people to think well of me. I want other people to think well of my work um, because if they do, it means they've been touched by it in some way. I certainly do not want them to be indifferent. I'd rather they dislike my work than just be indifferent to it. But, but it's, it is important to me. It's just that that can't be the first the thing of first importance, the thing of first importance is that the thing that I create is truly, honestly myself and not created the way that I create it. The thing that I create is not uh, driven by the, the imagined voices of other people, the imagined desires of other people. Um, sure, I want it to serve them. And in order for it to serve them, I have to know what their needs are. I know, kind of have to know what their, their itches before I can scratch it. But it has to first come from from me because there are millions of other people also out there trying to create their own work and, and serve certain needs. And I can't do it all. So the question is not, you know, how can I be everything to everyone? The question is how can I most be most truly myself to serve other people, knowing that there is a world out there that will also be serving their needs. And, you know, I look at some, any of the great people, uh, Louis Pasteur, 
or Picasso or Mother Teresa or Gandhi, or, you know, they did one thing truly exceptionally well, and that was faithful to who they were. They were not also out there, you know, Mother Teresa was not also a great sculptor and the inventor of electricity. And, you know, she, she didn't do 300 things to serve mankind. She did one thing, you know, and in fact, to quote Mother Teresa, you know, do small things with great love. Um, she, she wasn't out to save the world just to make one connection at a time. You know, one of the things that's, that's struck me when I was reading was that the whole conversation that you had about the voice in the head. And I think for me that is, has been the greatest obstacle in anything I've ever done. It hasn't been the circumstances outside of myself. It hasn't been um, the lack of, of resources or intelligence or anything like that. It's more the negativity that sort of pervades the, the thoughts in, in my head. And recently I had an experience where I was literally paralyzed and, and it took a phone call to a friend who just asked me, was the very next thing that I could do? And it was a really small thing. It was simply an email. And he suggested, well, why don't you just do that and don't worry about the rest? And it took me like half a day to finally send the email. When I finally did, it was like, it just, it broke through the, you know, the, the dam and allowed the, the waters to finally flow. And it just, amazes me sometimes that as immense, as intense as the fear can be, it's often the very smallest things that allow me to finally move through it. Is is that an experience that, you, that resonates with you? A- absolutely. In fact, I think, you know, we like to compartmentalize our beings, the, the things that we feel, the things that we think, our fear, our, the things that we do. And, and I think they're much closer to being a, you know, a, just a really messy, chunky soup than individual compartmentalized things. And, and courage is not an absence of fear. It's not, you know, the bravado of wearing a no fear t-shirt and jumping off cliffs without any regard for your safety. Courage is the, is an act of the will, uh, uh, and sometimes a very difficult one to get to in the presence of fear. And sometimes it is just that smallest movement forward. And, and I guess that's why I was starting this, my answer to you with the idea of everything being connected because sometimes it's the physicality of putting something into motion that is enough to sort of silence or answer that fear. Sometimes, you know, they say if the worst thing you have to do in the morning is kiss a frog, do it first thing, get it out of the way. And I think otherwise that fear of doing that one thing all day will paralyze us in many areas. It will, uh, and if not paralyze us, certainly taint our activities. If you can, just make a small thing. You know, it doesn't have to be write a book. Uh, that's a, a big thing and it would be daunting and fearful. But if you can break it down and you just have to do one thing, write an email, write an, in the case of writing a book, write an outline. Um, that's your to-do list. You're, you're not out to write a book. You're out today to write an outline. That, I think, is is one of those kind of – it just gets the the – barrier out of the way you know sometimes that that flood of creativity is dammed up by such a um, a thin membrane and but it often takes an actual i believe it was scott belsky who talked about uh in one of i think the book was making ideas happen or something like a rework it's sort of living a life in default to action that you're, you're always putting things in action. The ideas are just ideas until you do something about them. And I think the same thing is true of our fears that when you take that first step forward, 
you realize, you know what, it's not that scary. But putting, making that first step forward can be one of the most terrifying things we've ever done. There's no way around it except an act of the will to do it despite the fear. You could wait all your life and the fear will never disappear. Yeah, and you talk about it really well when you, when you, when you say in the book about uh, inspiration is derived from the work itself. And it's so true. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. I really enjoy visiting lynda.com because they regularly add great new content to their site. One of their recent classes is a course on street photography hosted by photographer and author Steve Simon. He takes to the streets and shares with you the insights he's gained as both a photojournalist and a street photographer. But you don't have to be a street photographer because lynda.com offers courses on travel, landscape, portrait photography, and so much more, and all from some of the best photographic instructors around. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com that provides you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for 10 days. Visit lynda.com, the candid frame, and use it for a week and a half. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your 10 day free trial and help support the show. The, the, the people that I see who are just amazing creative people uh, are constantly working. They're constantly producing. They're constantly making something. And that so much of what inspires them comes as, out of result, not of just fixating on the work itself, but, but just by living an interesting life. I, I think that interesting life is, is key to, to the whole thing. You know, I, I mean, the, the creative world that I come out of predominantly is photography and photographers have this uh, this knack of making photography their entire life and yet the, the true masters of photography over the you know the last number of generations have said y you've got to photography is not about life you know I mean sorry photography is about life life is not about photography you've got to have other interests you've got to have streams of inspiration coming in and and then of that make photographs you know get i mean who as creatives do we know other than just photographers and this applies to everyone if you're a writer spend time with you know visual artists and and composers and and engineers and you know the more we expand our horizons the more uh, interesting our lives become the more possible it becomes that we encounter plot twists that we never expected and, and new characters walk onto the stage of our life that, that give us new direction. We've got to branch out. We've got to, got to be open to something greater than just life being about cameras and stuff or about, you know, whatever it is that your particular creative endeavor is. When I've been away from shooting for a while, uh, getting back, getting back out is always a loaded thing for me. Um, part of it is because I have um, expectations. Part of it is that uh, I have self-doubt, uh, insecurity, whatever it is, and and get out there, and my mind is just like like a you know a hamster on a hamster wheel, <laughs> and then it's until I finally start to to shoot that I can finally get into sort of a a groove. It's sometimes it's seamless, but sometimes it's more of a of a struggle. 
And I was hoping that you might share a time when you had a similar experience and what helped you to move through all that stuff so that you could be as productive as you could be at that moment. Uh, I, I, the, the challenge in your question is that I'm not sure I can, uh, I'm not sure I could find a time that wasn't like that in my creative <laughs> process. You know, um, I'm reading a couple of books right now. Um, one, and I forgive me, I won't remember the name of the authors. One's called photography as meditation. It's a new book from Rocky Nook publishers. And the other is called, I think Zen and creativity. Um, and, and both of which, and I'm not a, I, I don't meditate in the traditional sense. Um, I, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a Buddhist in any sense. Um, but the ideas of Zen and meditation are helpful to me, um, on some level because it's about receptivity. It's about being still and, and kind of, uh, finding that still point from which we begin rather than finding a place of beginning from a place of chaos. Whereas I, I'm the same way as you, I go out with my, my camera and I'm, I'm looking everywhere and I'm frantic and, and there's the pressure of, Oh my God, I got to make a photograph that's at least as good as something else I've made. Or, you know, is my last great photograph behind me? Have I already, and all of these voices and chatter, 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 chatter. And I find that the best possible thing that I can do, and this applies to whether I'm writing, frankly, it applies to whether I'm having a conversation with a friend or I, I need frequently, and this is where these books kind of help put words to, to my practice, to find this still point and just settle down, just stop with the chaos <laughs> and mm. just tell the voices, hang on a sec, I, I need a moment. Uh, it, is, it is when I can do that, and it's I, not always successful, but I, I'll go if I'm, for example, uh, I'm going back to Venice in a couple of weeks and spending Christmas there and um, in part to get away, but in part to, to photograph and add to my body of work. And uh, I, I know that when I get there, I will experience a couple of days where my mind is just going everywhere, where it's just, just chatter, chatter, chatter. And the voices will be there and the fear will be there and all my work will suck. And I will finally go, you know what? You just need to go to a wine bar and have a glass of wine or go to a cafe and have a cappuccino. And you just need to sit and watch the world go by and just stop being so frantic. And I think, and that's with every project I do, with everything I do, my mind is going a million miles an hour. I need to routinely come back to this still point where I kind of clean the slate and I just go, okay, what do you really see? Forget what you think you should see. Forget what you think you sh your photograph should look like. And what do you see? What's there? Um, here's a good example. I was just out photographing I just got back last week from uh, northern Canada photographing polar bears. And um, we, we kind of didn't get there at the right time. You, you get there too early and you can't get out onto the tundra because it's, it's not uh, frozen. You get there too late and the polar bears have always got, already got onto the sea ice and gone out hunting. And you'll never see them again until spring. We got there and we had maybe two days to photograph the bears before they were all gone. We didn't know they would be all gone, but they were sort of distant and heading out onto the sea ice. And we sort of, the writing was on the wall. And there were a number of people that expressed to me, especially sitting around at dinner afterwards and talking about the disappointment. And a number of people expressed their experience to me in terms of what they were not photographing, what they, they did not see. Um, the bears weren't there and, and that was that. And yet I think when we focus on what is not there instead of what is there, 
Um, it's the opposite of receptivity. It's the opposite of stillness. Our mind is chatter, 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 and we don't see. It blinds us. Our expectations blind us to what we could be photographing. And where it applies is in the first two days, we had sort of been told that it would be a lot of polar bears and they would be quite close. And we would so people were using that first two days as kind of a, well, it's not great, but it's going to get better. And so they were not photographing as much. They were not being as receptive to what was there because it was going to get better. Well, it never got better. And in fact, it only got uh, worse in terms of the, <laughs> the presence of the bears. They just weren't present. Uh, and I think the the mindset, and we talk so little about this in photography, but the mindset that is receptive and focuses on what is there? What's in front of me that I can photograph? What do I want to photograph? Not, again, what is what do I expect to be there? What I wish was there? All of these things are well and good, but they're not helping us make better photographs. You can't make a photograph of something that's not there, so stop thinking so much about it. Concentrate, be receptive to the thing that is there. And uh, hopefully, you know, that answers your question about the hamster and the hamster wheel. Yeah. We all experience it. That hamster is going over time. And sometimes we just need to do something that, that uh, you know, metaphorically reaches in, grabs the hamster, takes them off the wheels and goes, stop. And just be. And then get back on the wheel and, and do your thing with renewed intent and purpose. It's a, it's a recalibration point. You know, you, people hear you talking about going to Venice for Christmas and going off to this exotic location to photograph the lack of presence of polar bears in this case. <laughs> um, and and you've said that a lot of people look at that and wish that for themselves and tell you openly that, but that you recognize that they're not really to, to pay the price that it takes to get to that point because of risk aversion, because they're afraid of losing something, either some false sense of security or something or other. Mm. And you went through a, you know, a divorce, a bankruptcy. And I wonder how much did having experienced those very dramatic, painful losses help you to be more willing to accept risk in your, in your personal life as well as your creative one? You know, I think it comes back to what I said earlier that the more you experience failure and, and falling down, uh, literally or, or figuratively, the, and the more you are conscious of the fact that you do, in fact, bounce back, that our hearts, our bodies, our minds, our, our creative selves are much more resilient than we think. The more you experience that, uh, I, I think probably also the more you experience it with a sense of gratitude. Um, rather than entitlement or, you know, focusing on the horrible things that have happened to you, focusing on, yes, tr terrible cards were dealt, um, some of them by my own doing, but I, I, I bounced still, I bounced back. Uh, if you can, if you can focus on the gratitude, if you can focus on the fact that we are resilient, uh, things I think feel less risky. But you, you have to experience that for yourself. You have to fall down a couple times uh, before you realize, hey, you know what? It's when I do fall, as scary as it is, it's not so bad. And that gives you, I think, um, some can give you the, the place from which to exercise the courage to move forward. Yeah, I, I heard from someone uh, recently who was carrying the burden of something that had happened 25 years ago. And it just blew my mind that that the pain of that was something that was still viscerally present 
now as it probably was over two and a half decades before. And I thought that, wow, how sad that that someone is not able to let that go. But when I took a look at my own life, uh, there were things that I was carrying from 25 years or longer that were Im- impeding my ability to, to to take certain actions today. Mm. And that to some extent, we're all doing it. And that the creativity provides us uh, a wonderful outlet to be able to move through those feelings because we're able to create something from virtually nothing or from, you know, all that the amalgam of all our life experiences allows us to do that, that despite all those things that happen, we can put a camera to our eye or put uh, tap on the keys and create something beautiful that resonates with someone. And I think mm. that's one of the, I think the greatest gifts that we have, if we have any modicum of talent regarding uh, photography or anything else is that things that have become a burden to someone else can be the greatest resource for us as, as creative people. Yeah. So I, I think that not only despite the experiences that we have, but in fact, because of them, uh, we are able to create, um, you know, true and honest works of creativity, wh- whatever field it is. If you look at the, the best movies, the things that really truly move us, um, you're never sure that the hero is going to make it out alive. You, it is, those are the stories that give us the most meaning, the most hope. And, and I think the book, uh, Beautiful Anarchy, is about f- creative freedom. And if you are waiting to have creative freedom when life is going well and you do not have uh, financial difficulties and everyone in your family is getting along and likes you and the wounds of the past have magically healed themselves, you will never create art. You will never create anything because art is a response to the life that we have. And, and I truly believe that you need to get back to, you know, your example, you need to find a place where you can forgive the people that have hurt you and wounded you. That does not mean forget. It doesn't mean that you can't then use that horrific experience to tell stories that, that make a difference, that bring some light into people's lives. That, you know, we use this stuff as fodder for the things we create. And as you said, you know, it gives us a way, creativity gives us a way through these dark times, not around them. You know, um, it, it doesn't ever, I think, prevent us. In fact, it probably causes more problems than it solves in some ways uh, because the artistic spirit is kind of restless. But it does give us a way through. And I think that's that's what makes it so deeply human is none of us live a life where we're not experiencing these challenges and hurts and fears and betrayals and uh, whatever. The Candid Frame Photo Essentials ebook and videos, which I've recently produced, were created from a need that I saw. So many people own these great picture-making tools, but are challenged in their ability to make consistently good photographs. Yes, they may have a relatively good understanding of f-stops, shutter speed, white balance, etc., but it's still not resulting in the kind of photographs they aspire to. This new offering is meant to get you beyond the principles of all these features and controls and help you to embrace them in a way that help you to consciously make better photographs. The book and videos explain the when and why and not just the how. Use the discount code TCF2014 today and receive it for just $59. Check it out and order it at thecandidframestore.com where you can also find discounts on other books I've written as well as a DVD based on my first book, 
Chasing the Light. You get to explore your own personal creativity and all the things that revolve around that through the writing, um, through the you know through the conversations that you've had with people like me, as well as the friends, and and, and by your own by your own photography. Um, how important is being tapped into the process by having these conversations, by writing, provide you that you think is invaluable to you and and something that um yeah how you know why is it so important to you how is it does it help you i i well from i can only answer it for myself i i think some people do work very intuitively and without as much a kind of awareness of the process i've always been a person that has to understand why and how before i go on to do that thing and so when i was doing comedy uh I was much more successful and much more happier with my process when I understood what is it that makes people laugh? What is the structure of a great joke? And then uh, from those principles and that understanding created. And so for me as a photographer or writer, being really conscious of my process helps me, uh, helps me move through that process without all these voices clamoring because I, I can, as we talked about at the very beginning of this, trust the process. I can you can't trust a process that you don't know or understand, even though it's always going to be somewhat mysterious. It is at least predictable. I know where the pitfalls in my process are. I know where the dark times are. I know where the, what the rhythm of my creative process is like. And because I know that and in part through conversations with people like you and conversations, even one-sided ones where I'm reading a book by someone who's experienced the creative life in a different way. It gives me insight into my own process and helps just simply helps me navigate those those uh, uncharted places because that's what creativity is. It, you're always in uncharted places, but if you forgive the terrible metaphor, but you know if this truly is uncharted territory and you're on a boat, knowing your boat, knowing the sails, knowing how it works and rides the waves, and that it will respond in certain ways um, to the weather and the waves gives you trust, gives you the faith that you might just make it through this time. Yeah. And one of the other things you touch on, which I think is so important, is just the issue of our own mortality. And that awareness and acceptance of that fact allows us to make the choice to take advantage of what each day offers, whether or not you have the complete freedom, uh, autonomy of being self-employed, or even if you're working for somebody else, that we can make choices each day to help us make the most of it and, and, and making the choice not to, you know, procrastinate, but actually to choose to do something that uplifts us and allows us to be really grateful for what that day has, has offered. What helps you to keep that focus for your, for yourself each day? Cause like we've talked about, there's so many things that can stand against that. And the day-to-day is oftentimes the, the, the bigger challenge than anything that we may try to do with, with the camera. But specifically with the day-to-day, what, what helps you to keep that attitude of gratitude? Well, without, without being too morbid about it, I, uh, I try very hard not to, not to forget that life is of a relatively limited span. Uh, you know, the Latin expression, memento mori, remember, remember your death, remember 
remember the brevity of life and not again, not to be morbid about it. Um, but in, in a very celebratory way, it may, the, the, the very fact of my eventual demise, the brevity of my life, which will seem like a, a, it'll seem like a hundredth of a second when we look back on it. Uh, that, that makes it all the more valuable in, in any, you know, in a, in a market, a free market economy, the scarcer something is, the more valuable it is. And, and what have we got that is scarcer and less certain than the time in our lives? I, I just had a phone call before I started talking to you this morning with a friend whose father was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And, um, yesterday heard that, you know, that my father was in the hospital and, and it seems like he's going to be okay, but they were worried he might've had a stroke. And, you know, I mean, I am surrounded by living human beings that are so incredibly fragile and having had my own sort of very near death experience, um, uh, three years ago. And I'm just very conscious of the fact that this will end and, and I have not only X amount of years, but I don't even know how many. So I am going to not only make sure my years are well lived, but that my days and my moments, you know, and that's the gift of photography. It, it helps you recognize the incredible importance of one one hundredth of a second. It helps you recognize the importance and the value and the beauty of single moments that otherwise would be lost, uh, never noticed, never, never perceived and enjoyed. And so I don't, you know, I don't go through my day dressed in black and, and mourning <laughs> the fact that I, I, I'm not going to live forever. I go through my day conscious of the fact that I have at my disposal this incredibly beautiful, scarce resource, and I want to use it every minute of it as well as I can. And that's, I mean, the definition I think of a well-lived life is you redeem your moments minute by minute and do things that make the world a better place that you enjoy and are grateful for. And I don't think this is a position of privilege. I've traveled the world and been as a humanitarian photographer with, with some of the poorest of the poor and experience in their company the same joy and gratitude. Uh, in fact, often... Uh, often experience more joy and gratitude than I do among people of my own uh, economic bracket and uh, culture. And, and I don't want to romanticize poverty. I just want to say that gratitude is not a function of our station in life. Gratitude is something that we choose. It's a perspective. And from that place, I think the, the greater creativity flows rather than being blocked by things like entitlement or resentfulness or, or unforgiveness. We've been talking about one book in particular, but I know that you've written uh, several other ones recently. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, uh, about those? Yeah, well, probably, the, I mean, the one that is most relevant to the conversation is the, what I would consider the follow-up to a beautiful anarchy. And, and that's <laughs> uh, tongue-in-cheek called How to Feed a Starving Artist. Um, and, and it's, it came out of my own failures initially, uh, as a creative to make a go of it with money. And, and I think, you know, my approach in everything increasingly has been to be very intentional about things. And at a certain point I realized I was not being intentional about money and 
you mentioned earlier my bankruptcy and when I filled out my form for bankruptcy, there was a line there that said, you know, reason for being, for going bankrupt. And I wrote optimism <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's, and, and I wasn't being facetious. The fact is I just always believed things were going to get better. And it, that is a, a beautiful thing, but in combination with a credit card is very dangerous. Um, so that, that's the first reason that I wrote the book was, was this, uh, growing knowledge that one creatives can in fact make a living but they they uh maybe are not equipped with the tools to do so uh, or are not conscious or are making the intentional um they're not intentionally employing those tools uh, the second is that we have there is such shame associated with talking about finances we could be uh we could be creating great work. We could be living extremely generous lives. We could be doing the things we want to do without financial burden. But everyone is so afraid of talking about money. We don't want to talk about it if we make too little because we're ashamed of it unless unless we're sort of there's a certain amount of pride in being a starving artist, which I can't help you <laughs> with that. Um, or if we make too much, we don't want to talk about it because there's a self-consciousness there. And I, if we could, for now, suspend that shame and that fear and actually talk about money, forget how much you make. That's, you know, that's your own business. But, but what are the tools for making money? What are, the, um, what are the attitudes that will be more productive and helpful in dealing with your money? Um, I know so many creative people that if they would just get their finances in gear – that, that, and this would take some sacrifice on their part, would take some very intentional effort and maybe some outside help from an accountant. Um, but they could get their financial house in order and then live with much greater freedom. So many people say, David, I wish I could do the things you do, um, but I can't afford to. And, and I, <laughs> I kind of wonder how much money they think I actually make because there's a lot of things I can't choose to do either. But I make my choices and uh, to choose to do one thing means I can't do another. And that doesn't mean that I'm not making a healthy living. I, I am. And you probably don't want to read a book about finances from someone who can't make his own finances work. Uh, my finances for the first time in my life are in very good order and I'm thrilled with how they're going. But I still have to make choices. I still need to not spend more than I make. And so the the wisdom that I uh, that I employ every day with my finances are, is the same wisdom that someone who's starting out as a creative would do very well to pay attention to. And it's, it's nothing new. I mean, I, I haven't come up with any new principles. I've simply talked to people who know more about this stuff than me and put, put it in a book along with some stories and the encouragement to do it and do it now because if you can get your, crea- your finances in order, it's one less thing standing in the way of your creativity course you can be creative as a starving artist many many artists did and created beautiful work but I, I would argue they didn't do it because they were starving that just happened to be a you know a coincidence and i completely agree that that, that issue of shame is probably the, the biggest burden that creatives have with regards to to money and i think that what's helped me sort of move past that is is having a group of people who i can be open about that who share the same experiences i i do regarding those feelings and it can help me. And I think that that, that, uh, that idea of, of stepping outside of ourselves and asking for help, whether it's from an accountant, whether it's a support group, whether it's another creative who've, who's seen their way through way through there is absolutely critical because I think if you try to sort of fix it yourself, uh, you know, you're going to treatment from the wrong person. 
I totally agree. <laughs> you know, and there's so much out there. There, for me, it all started when I went to see a credit counselor. I finally realized I, I, no matter what I do, I cannot get ahead of this. And and my financial rehabilitation happened when I swallowed my pride, and I called someone and said, "I gotta, I gotta talk to someone." And you know, and at least in in Canada, there are a number of kind of free credit counseling services. There are there are people out there who will walk you through the the painful but necessary rehabilitation of your finances, and. It was it was hard. I got to tell you, going bankrupt was, and I'm not suggesting that that's the solution for everyone. I was I was basically told that was my only recourse, and I, I was in fact I was told I had two options: I could go bankrupt this week, or I could go bankrupt next week. Mm-hmm. And so I chose next week. And I have it was it was difficult. It was very almost dehumanizing. But I when it finally happened, it was one of the greatest freedoms of my life. And now being able to live in a way that I can be uh, more generous than I ever imagined that I could be, that I could live a life that if, if I need to help someone, I can. If I need to, if I want to do a project, uh, depending of course on what it is, uh, I, I can make it happen. I still save up like everyone else. If I want to do a trip, I save my money. I don't put it on a credit card, you know. Um, but for, for the first time in my life when my credit card statement comes in, I am quite happy to see it. In fact, I love paying my credit card statement because I can mm. for the first time in my life. You know, it took me years to get there, but now I can. And I, I think if if it's only shame that's standing in the way, find a way to swallow that. It's a bit bitter pill, but you know what? It's You've got to. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the close of, uh, of the year. And as, we, as you've talked about, you know, you've made a lot of choices. You've taken a lot of risk. You've no doubt experienced some failures. But looking past... Uh, at the year, is there something that you feel like you've experienced or, or had happened um, that was a direct result of all those choices that was probably one of the most satisfying experiences that you, you would care to share with us? Uh, you know, I, hmm, that's hard. I would say the whole year, and, and that sounds like a cop-out, and it probably is, but the there, there was no one moment where I thought, uh, Oh my gosh, you know, that, that was what everything's been leading to. In fact, it was a difficult year. I had another surgery on my foot. And so most of my travel got suspended and, and I stayed close to home and learned to walk yet again. And, and, um, but it was a truly beautiful year and, and releasing a beautiful anarchy. I think if I had to say anything, uh, releasing a beautiful anarchy would probably be it because I, I, I didn't have any anticipation of it being a huge commercial success. In fact, it's a self-published book that has done, you know, quite, quite well for, for a small self-published book, but it, I wasn't looking to get a, an attaboy from people. I wasn't looking to get great reviews or even a financial success. I was looking simply to, to do the thing that I had had longed to do and to put it out into the world. And it's deeply gratifying when people say it's had an effect on them. And I, and I get emails every week saying, you know, this, this is probably the best book that you've written, which of course is on one hand gratifying. And on the other hand, you think, well, what's wrong with the other stuff I wrote? <laughs> uh, but to have put it out there, and this is, and I don't talk about this much, but this is the reason I left comedy was because I loved what I did, but I was always a persona on stage. And now I do something where I am the person that you hear me um, being on a podcast or in my books. That's the person I am. 
and I get to write books that say the things I want to say, that say how I, um, how I feel and think and are, are as authentic as I can make them. And I think that's the great joy of any creative person is to get to a point where you can put out something that is a reflection of you that is deeply personal and meaningful. And when you look at it, no, it's not perfect. Nothing we do is perfect, but it's, it's beautiful in its imperfections and it's, it's as authentic as I could make it. And, and then it paves the way for, okay, what is the next thing? What, what that part is done now, what is the next expression of who I'm becoming that I want to put out into the world? And I I don't know, I don't have an answer for that yet. So I'm going to go to Venice. I'm going to drink some wine and drink some cappuccinos and I'm going to find out. (laughs) Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I'm going to say Jay Mizell. And it's, uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was going to give a disclaimer. I won't. I, I love Jay's work. I love his personality. The reason I mention him is he's just come out with a new book that I finished this morning and will probably tomorrow start reading again. Uh, and it's called uh, Light, Gesture, and Color, um, which sums up Jay's entire approach to, to photography. And what I love about it is it's just a book of photographs with very simple wisdom on every page that gets past the F stops and the shutter speed and what camera should I use? And I've been thinking about going to Fuji, but I have Nikon. Should I sell it? And oh my God, does that stuff ever not really matter? And Jay has this, this no BS way of cutting through it all. Um, he's lived a very long, full life as a commercial photographer, as an artist. Um, you know, I, I, every time I put my iPod onto, um, Miles Davis kind of blue. There's one of Jay Mizell's photographs staring at me. And, and to hear one of these elder statesmen, to look at his work, uh, but to also to hear one of these elder statements talk about what really matters in photography, I think is, is important because he has, he has the credibility to go along with it. I, I can say these things, but as a 43 year old, um, you know, I mean, I'm still relatively young. What do I know? But Jay Mizell has the credibility. So study Jay Mizell's work, but if you can get a copy of his new book, Light, Col- uh, Light Gesture and Color, uh, do. It will be absolutely well worth your while in terms of, um, y- you know, your, your development as a photographer in the areas that truly matter. Yeah, I just finished it this week. It's a, it's a great book. I'll have a link to it in the, in the show notes. Perfect. So, uh, so, David, where can people go to find out more about you and everything you do? You know, the best, best place is just to go to, uh, to my website, daviddusheman.com, uh, or to craftandvision.com. Um, that's kind of the repository of, uh, all my books, including A Beautiful Anarchy. Um, if you're just interested in A Beautiful Anarchy, you can go to abeautifulanarchy.com. Uh, and there I have a, new but growing blog that's not specifically for photographers but is about living a creative life coloring outside the lines and and so you can get the book there both a beautiful anarchy and how to feed a starving artist as well as uh read the articles uh, that sort of come out of what i've written in a beautiful uh, anarchy oh thank you david and uh i wish you a wonderful 2015 and when you're in uh, venice have a cannoli for me i will indeed thanks so much iberian x Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. 
The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50 or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.